Before we begin, let me take a moment to tell you what you're in for. The story I'm about to share with you comes from the universe of the Traveler's Gate trilogy by Will White, and only if you've read those books do you have the full training necessary to handle information from that realm. This story was previously released as part of the Traveler's Gate Chronicles short story collection, so if you've read that already, I have good news. You've already survived exposure to its incredible power. The only difference today is that you'll be experiencing it with your ears instead of your eyes. If you haven't read the Traveler's Gate books, you may not be able to harness the full energy of these stories. You can try if you'd like, but side effects of unqualified exposure may include confusion, lack of comprehension, or spontaneous combustion. If you're the kind of person that wants to prepare yourself and read the books first, you can find House of Blades, the first book in the Traveler's Gate trilogy, on Amazon or Audible. It will give you the guidance necessary to comprehend these stories without bleeding from the ears. However, if you know that you are unqualified and have decided that this story isn't for you, then we understand and wish you a fond farewell. May we meet again someday, you beautiful stranger. For those of you still with me, we're going together into the pieces of the Traveler's Gate world that weren't covered in the main books, unexplored and unknown corners of the territories. We're going off the edges of the map, and here, there be dragons. Ragnaros. First year of the Damascan calendar. First year in the reign of Queen Sinara I. Winter's End. Sinara of Damascus stood on the remnants of a wall she herself had broken. Only a few months ago, Cana had been an enemy city she'd paid dearly to capture. Now, it was her final refuge, and not much of one at that. From here, she could see the enemy arrayed against her, a set of game pieces arranged neatly on a vast board. They stood in three distinct groups, as she would have expected, given their vastly different natures. To the north, the Asphodel incarnation towered over the rest. He looked like nothing so much as a cloud bank shaped into a robed scholar. His head scraped the sky, and at his feet, a colorful garden of deadly plants sprouted spontaneously. Serpentine shapes moved in the clouds of his feet, and flocks of birds wheeled in the mist of his chest, but he was otherwise motionless. To the south, a flashing thunderstorm followed the hordes of Endros. Wyverns flew and spat lightning back up at the clouds, while on the ground, giant snakes and draconic lizards frolicked in a spectacle of blue-white sparks. The Endros incarnation was lost among them, but she supposedly had the face of a beautiful woman and the clawed limbs of a giant reptile. That was solely rumor, though. The last Endros incarnation Sinara destroyed had been a man who looked like he was made of packed sand and pure lightning. Directly ahead, between the other two camps, were the Elysians. They were divided into nine neat camps, color-coded for her convenience. She couldn't make out the details of individual figures, but she could guess well enough. The gold district would be made up of armored soldiers, some of which had the heads or bodies of animals. The red district would be tiny, deceptively strong gnomes, the blue made up of twisting vampiric sea creatures, and so on. After the campaign she had fought, she was more familiar with Elysia than she'd ever wanted to be. The wind caught Sinara's blonde hair, pulling it behind her like a flag. She felt the icy winter wind on her face and didn't flinch. It would be hot enough in the battle. She should cool down now, while she still could. 
The old man's laughter sounded from the swirling crimson portal next to her. You're so grim, child, when you should be celebrating. Only three incarnations here. Those are much better odds than you expected. Sinara kept her eyes fixed on the incarnation of Elysia, who at this distance was nothing more than a gold and white blur. Three. So six are free to rampage across my kingdom, killing as they wish. The old man smiled, splitting his gray-black beard in two. As always, he carried a simple wooden staff, despite the weapons available to him in his crimson vault. He wore unadorned gray robes, tied at the waist by a hemp rope, and his beard fell in a fan across his chest. From those features alone, he might have looked like a homeless beggar, but the whole of him was majestic somehow as though he were a king who had decided to dress himself as a peasant to survey the common folk. He turned his eyes to her, one an ordinary gray eye and one a shining scarlet stone. Truly, you always look on the sweet side of things. Sinara lowered herself to sit on the wall. No need to keep standing, and she would need all her strength for the upcoming fight. Have you found a solution? As it happens, I have. She eyed him suspiciously. With the old man, answers were never cheap. Is that so? He spread one gnarled hand, revealing a handful of blood-red seeds. They looked simple enough, like stubby beans. It took me years to gather this many, but I've finally done it. She didn't take them. We've been down this path before. There are nine here, Sinara. One to bind each of the eight lesser incarnations and one for Elysia. Sinara shook her head, watching the wind push the Asphodel incarnation's mist around. Only nine. I would have thought you'd want a backup plan. The old man leaned heavily on his staff, making the wood creak. Or maybe that was his spine. The hanging trees work best in multiples of three. More than nine, and it may become unstable. You don't want that. I don't want to pay your price at all, she said. We've spoken of this before. There's only one life I have the authority to sacrifice. He nodded toward the three otherworldly armies. How many lives have they taken, do you think? How many more before you or they are defeated? I'm asking you to walk the path of lesser carnage, not greater. Sinara pretended to work that over in her mind, but the truth was she had reached a decision weeks ago. She only argued for the principle of it to soothe her wounded conscience. He was right. In this case, a lesser sacrifice was necessary to prevent a greater. And she would be the first. She would not let her people pay a price she could not afford herself. She reached out to take the seeds, but he pulled back his fist. So eager all of a sudden, the old man said. I must first recover my investment. Sinara glared at him, wondering, not for the first time, if his own weapons would work against him. You may have my life. That's all I have to give. He stroked his beard thoughtfully. Well, not quite. Anger finally burst through her, sharp and hot. This subject is closed. You could rule when Elysia is cast down. And become a tyrant worse than she could ever be. Not a tyrant, a queen, an immortal queen, commanding a united land. Sinara stood, putting herself face to face with the old man's crimson eye. 
I will pay whatever price I must to keep my daughter and her kingdom safe, but that does not include becoming a monster. I would put her in even more danger than the threat of Elysia. I have put one amount on the table. Now take it or be gone. The old man's red eye flared and his gray grew suddenly piercing. I see I cannot swear you. Very well, you have forsaken life eternal, and Ragnaros will drink the last of your blood. She snatched the seeds from his hand. I hope you choke on it, she muttered. A horn drifted to her on the wind, sweet and pleasant as an angel's song. Her heart turned to ice. Asphodel and Endros remained motionless, waiting on the plains. They would be used as reinforcements for the primary assault, an assault that, she knew, would be coming any minute now. The armies of Elysia had begun to move. Sinara finally found her daughter racing through the twisting streets of ruined Cana. They had been searching for one another. The fourteen-year-old girl collapsed into her mother's arms, shaking uncontrollably. I heard the horn. Everyone else is in hiding, but I had to find you. Sinara the first pushed her daughter out to arm's length, the better to get a look at Sinara the second. The girl had the same blonde hair and piercing blue eyes as the rest of her family, and she was just as gangly and awkward as her mother had been at her age. She smiled at her daughter, pushing a handful of eight seeds into the confused girl's hands. Take these, plant them in the bloody ground, then lure the incarnations close. The tree will bind them. They need to be fed, one life per year. Their hunger would grow with time, but they were a temporary measure at best, meant to last for a few years at most. Hopefully, Sinara II would do what the first could not, and find another way to deal with the incarnations for good. The girl took the seeds, confusion plain on her face. Mother, why, why don't you? Sinara grabbed her daughter tight, hugging her one last time. The others will follow you. I'm taking the easy way out, I'm afraid. I'm only dealing with one incarnation. You'll have to take care of the other eight. Wait, please, I don't. She placed a single kiss on her daughter's forehead. Rule wisely, Sinara II. May your reign be longer and more fruitful than mine. A terrifying screech sounded overhead and Sinara spun, summoning the lightning spear into her hand. Its blade was worked with gold, its hilt black wood with a bright ruby set into its head. Run, daughter, Sinara said. There was a moment of hesitation and then the slap of feet on stones as the girl ran. Just in time, something like a bright blue jellyfish the size of a horse swung up the side of a broken building before scuttling like a spider down toward Sinara. At the same time, an animated suit of gold armor came dashing down a side street, roaring a wordless war cry. Sinara stepped forward, hurling the lightning spear. She felt the price immediately. Her body was racked with indescribable pain, as though every bone had been shattered at once. The spear itself flew with a hundred times the force she had used, striking the charging armor like a thunderbolt and blasting it to red-hot shards of smoking metal. The blue jellyfish made a wet, sticky, whistling sound and leaped, its tentacles curling in midair. The spear was already on its way back to Sinara's hand, but she couldn't throw it again in time, so she raised her other hand. The red wand drizzled sparks of red light like glowing crimson tears. 
Flexing her will, Sinara triggered the power of the bleeding wand. With a shriek, the wand's power blasted forward. A wave of crimson light devoured the jellyfish, but it didn't slow. It continued forward until it hit the side of a three-story tower, which instantly dissolved and blew away as featureless gray dust. The tower stood for a second on three legs instead of four. A great roar drowned the city as the side of the building slid away. Rubble crashed into the street like an avalanche. Sinara stood in the middle of a broken street as the lightning spear smacked back into her waiting palm. The bill for the bleeding wand would come due later, but she'd never thought she would be willing to pay it. The wand devoured the user's sanity with every use. In time, it would leave her a cackling madwoman, eager to blast everyone to dust. She had never planned to use the wand, but it was amazing how different the world looked in the face of her imminent death. A woman's voice, sweet and clear like the chiming of a crystal bell, sounded from behind her. Your territory is an abomination, Sainara. It thrives on blood and death. Sainara turned, a crimson weapon in each hand, to face the golden-haired incarnation of Elysia. I'm not the one who destroyed this country, Ralia. Ralia's eyes were cool, like a pair of gold coins. Sometimes a mother must be rough with her children to show them the right way. She didn't look monstrous, like many of the other incarnations Sinara had seen. She wore a simple white robe, belted by a golden sash, and her skin was still clear and as pale as it had ever been. Her bare feet drifted six inches above the ground, with not even an orange glow to give her away. But Ralia had always been skilled with the orange light, even before incarnation took her. Sainara couldn't help it. She let out a peal of laughter. You see yourself as a mother now. That's how you justify wholesale slaughter. Those who follow me are safe and secure. I'm building a paradise. You're filling a graveyard. Ralia called a globe of golden light into one hand, the other writhed with knots of twisting blue. Then let your grave be the last. The incarnation thought she was being clever, but Sainara was ready for her. She sidestepped, firing her wand at the ground where she had been standing a moment before. The cobblestones disintegrated, as did the tentacles of blue light that had been waiting beneath them. Ralia had never been very good at setting traps. Sainara hurled the lightning spear at Ralia's chest. It blasted through the orb of gold light the incarnation had just thrown, slamming into a hexagonal plate of green in front of Ralia's dress. The green light cracked, and Sainara intended to follow up with a blast from the wand to break the shield, but the spasm of pain from throwing the lightning spear caught up with her. She shook once, and the moment passed. A cushion of orange caught her feet, dragging her up toward the sky. The spear hadn't returned yet, so Sainara called a different weapon into her empty hand, the Lonely Dagger. Its red-streaked blade sliced through the orange light as if through paper, and Sainara twisted in midair, landing in a crouch. The lightning spear met her outstretched palm, and she hurled it again, blindly. Pain shuddered her body, but she was more worried about the dagger's price. She could summon it and use it freely, but the minute she banished it back to Ragnaros, she would forget someone. The longer she kept it here, the more important the person she would forget. After a moment's thought, Sainara banished the dagger. As useful as it would be to keep around, 
There were a few people she wouldn't want to forget, not on the day she died. She wasn't sure what memories she had lost, that was the nature of the cost, but she only had the dagger out for a few seconds. In the incredibly unlikely event that she survived this day, some minor noble was going to be very offended when she forgot him completely. Ralia deflected the spear with a wall of green, and Sinara realized she had a chance. She scrambled over to the section of road where the cobblestones had shattered, bearing earth. This was the third time the city of Cana had been invaded, twice in the last year. Enough blood had been spilled in this city to soak the soil. Or so she hoped. If it hadn't, the hanging tree wouldn't take root, and she would die at the Elysia Incarnation's hands. Frantically, she dug at the dirt with her bare hands, pressing one of the seeds down and sweeping some soil over it. Red light flared underneath, shining through the thin layer of earth. Sinara's heart unclenched. Ralia held a sword of gold light in one hand now, but she stared at the ground, uncertain. What is that? she asked. Sinara didn't call the lightning spear to return. She left it lying on the ground like a piece of debris. She dropped the bleeding wand to one side. I win, was all she said. She was covered by a dozen cuts, some of which wept freely. In the case of her left arm, a piece of flying debris had sliced her deep. Sinara pinched the wound together, sending a drop of blood onto the ground above the seed. The earth trembled. Ralia raised a hand to hurl golden light. A tendril of red erupted from the ground, wrapping around Sinara's wound. She could feel blood flowing from her into the tree, weakness taking over her body. It wasn't painful, but neither was it pleasant. What did- Ralia began, but she was interrupted by the rising of the hanging tree. It rumbled as it rose, little more than a sapling in size, but menacing still. Its leafless limbs whipped blindly at the air, each covered in tiny thorns. The root around her hand was not. It was smooth, almost gentle, as it drew upon her blood for power. Sensing danger, Ralia flared orange light at her feet and began to fly away. The hanging tree didn't let her. Thorny branches seized her around each ankle, dragging the incarnation closer and closer to the ground, even as she strained to fly away. She turned, hacking branches with her sword of yellow light, but the branches kept growing back, kept reaching. Sinara's arm had grown cold, and she was feeling dizzy. Death wasn't such a bad fate for her, she supposed, not for such a good cause. But her daughter would be alone. She was only 14. What if the lords and ladies didn't listen to her? What if she couldn't rebuild? There was every chance she would be killed before she could get the trees planted. Would their new nation of Damasca ever escape its birth pangs? Ralia dropped her sword, having switched to a new tactic. Even as she was dragged backwards, scraping across the ground, she held out her palms. A golden portal opened in front of her, a gate leading into the city of light. It was beyond anything Sinara had ever imagined. Graceful walls of gold and silver rose from a flower-strewn field, and towers of every color stretched almost to the sunset-colored sky. Red light of her own generation, not from Ragnaris, twisted around Ralia's limbs. With her newfound strength, she tore free of the hanging tree. It wouldn't last. The tree was already reaching for its incarnation, and it would catch her before she got too far. But it was enough. 
Ralia crossed the border of her gate into the fields of Elysia. The thorny branches recoiled, unable to cross from one world into another. That was interesting. The old man had never mentioned that the trees wouldn't work in a territory. That must have been why he had insisted on her planting them here. Sinara's dizziness had grown so she could barely stay upright, and her vision was beginning to fuzz at the edges, but she still fixed the incarnation with a smile. Good enough. Stay sealed in that world or this one, Ralia. It means nothing to me. Ralia shrugged, the motion more graceful than it had any right to be. I would say I got the better of this little exchange. I keep my life while you are parted with yours. Sinara couldn't stay standing any longer. She collapsed, landing hard on her knees. She barely felt the pain. I can think of greater prices. I am eternally patient, the Elysia incarnation said. You should have stood with me, sister. Then the shining gate closed, and the last thing Sinara saw of her older sister was a pair of golden eyes, eyes that were once a blue as bright as her own. Her vision was fading quickly, but as far as she could see down the road and into the city, red roots were erupting from the cobblestones, seizing creatures of Elysia and draining the life from them. All over the city, does the tree's influence really stretch so far? She hoped it would be enough to keep the other incarnations away until her daughter had a chance to drive them into a corner and seal them for good. Her thoughts drifted to Sinara the second as she fell onto her back, staring up at the clear winter sky. For the first time in years, she felt some measure of hope. Her daughter had the seeds. She had the key to the Crimson Vault. Maybe the incarnations wouldn't be the end of this world after all. My life was a small price to pay. Everything went black. It was difficult to open a gate from the other side, not to mention expensive, abominably expensive. But every once in a while, the old man felt it was worth it. The Ragnarus gate formed, opening directly beside Sinara's body, sprawled across the shattered street. A root of the hanging tree uncurled from her wrist. The old man stepped out, using his staff for balance. The tree itself, little more than a sapling, hissed as he approached. It wanted even him, hungered for even his blood, but it didn't attack. Even the murderous plant knew better. Leaning on his wooden staff, the old man knelt, tolerating the creaking pain in his knees. Queen Sinara's eyes stared sightlessly up at the sky. Her eyes were beautiful, he supposed, if you appreciated that sort of thing. Personally, he thought they would look much better in red. You have given everything you have to Ragnarus, he murmured. Let me help you take the last step. The old man extended one gnarled finger and pressed it to her forehead. Before her soul departed completely, he willed some of his power into her, flooding her body, repairing its damage. She gasped and jerked awake. Her eyes were already gone, replaced by solid orbs of red flame. Her new skin crept over her like ice over a freezing lake, turning her to a fluid statue of blood-colored steel. Her clothes flared and blazed away, replaced by a long dress of scarlet light. The old man stepped back to admire his handiwork as the first incarnation of Ragnaris rose to her feet. What have you done? Sinara whispered through metallic red lips. 
He prided himself on his tolerance and even disposition, but he was a tad offended. I have saved you from the brink of death. That's what I've done. I've made a masterpiece from that which you would have wasted. You can fill the gap your sister left. You will be my hand in this world. Sanara met his gaze. He had been right. Her new eyes were much more beautiful. You told me this would only cost me my life. The old man smiled fondly as he would at a naive granddaughter. You will find that's not the only time I have lied to you. Now, Ragnaros, go forth and take your throne. She looked at him and down at the bloody branches twisting around her feet. I do not answer to you. She walked into the hanging tree, her arms spread wide. The branches picked her up, lifting her into the sky, and then pulled her down under the ground. She didn't say a word. Once, in a place far away, the old man had been renowned for his foresight, but he hadn't seen this coming. He knew she would be able to hear him still. The hanging tree was of Ragnaros, and now she was Ragnaros. Unlike the other incarnations, she would never fully lose consciousness. It would be a fate worse than death. She should have listened to him. Well, your line will continue, Queen Sainara. Our pact remains unbroken. I will deal with the others, your sons and daughters, since you would not let me deal with you. And who can tell? Maybe someday, when you are free, you will come to see things my way. With one last backward glance to see the tree waving in the air, the old man stepped into his vault and closed the door. If you still put your own needs before the needs of others, every other virtue is without meaning. This is the key to all I have taught you. There is no love greater than sacrifice. Elysian Book of Virtues, Chapter 9, White The Crystal Fields A traveler of Lyriel would tell you that intelligence and quick wits are the most valuable tools in the crystal fields. These are indeed admirable traits, but a would-be master of the silver light requires something deeper. Elysian Book of Virtues, Chapter 3, Silver this story has been passed down to Lyrial travelers since the dawn of Elysia itself. As it was told to me, so I will tell it to you. This is the story of Corypheus, the best of all Lyrial travelers. He was known as a wise and learned man who served the Elysians well. It was he who gave us the first moon charts, who outwitted the first Lyrial incarnation, and who organized teams to explore the tombs of the Daniri, seeking their treasures. Truly. He was a great man, and none knew the greatness of Corypheus better than Corypheus himself. In those times, Lyrial travelers were plentiful, so they built cities for themselves among the crystal fields. One day, a white ape with six eyes walked into the greatest city in Lyrial where Corypheus ruled. None had ever met this ape, but they treated him with respect, for Lyrial travelers know better than most how wise it is to show respect to strangers. The ape called himself Seliothen, and he was most interested in Corophus. Who is this Corophus? he asked people in the city streets. Is he worthy of rule? He is the best of us, the people responded. He reads the moons like ink on a page. He punishes and rewards with an even hand. 
When his own son spoke against his rule, he punished the boy according to the law with no favoritism. Naraka travelers come to him for justice. There is none more worthy of rule. I see, Seliathan said. He rules fairly then, but is he strong? Strong as the mountains themselves. He traveled deep into Ornheim and, on his own power alone, subdued a hundred golems. He brought them back here to raise the very walls you see around you. When the black army rose up in Tartarus, he drove them back into the labyrinth before the Elysians heard a word of unrest. Lyriel is not known for its strength of arms, but Corophus is the one exception. So it seems, Seliathan said. Very well, he is strong and just, but is he wise? Wise, the people cried. Look no further for wisdom. He has raided the libraries of Helgard, bringing back their books for our own study. He devised the most intricate mechanisms for keeping our precious sources hidden. He is on the very brink of deciphering the language of the Daenerys themselves. Seliathan pondered for a long time. Finally, he shook his head. This Corophus sounds like a learned man indeed, said the ape. He does not, however, strike me as wise. The people were shocked at Seliathan's words, but none more so than Corophus himself. When rumor reached him that a stranger had questioned his wisdom, he sent for Seliathan immediately. You see, Corophus took his appearance very seriously, and to challenge Corophus' reputation was to challenge Corophus himself. When Seliathan was brought before him, Corophus first tried to reason with him. It has come to my attention that you doubt my intelligence, he said. This troubles me greatly. Seliathan bowed. My lord, it is not your keen mind, I doubt, but rather the use to which you put it. No one else had ever questioned Corophus' wisdom, but he was determined to remain polite to Seliathan's face. How may I prove to you my wisdom? Fortunately, my lord, there is a simple test, Seliathan said. The Daniri left a riddle behind, as they left so many other things, and we may use it to better ourselves. I am told you are close to deciphering the Daniri tongue. Corophus waved a hand lazily in the air. I have yet to properly apply myself. I am sure the solution is not so complex as most believe. Then this puzzle shall not trouble you long. When you solve it, you shall find me among your most vocal supporters. Very well, Corophus said. Show me your riddle. Seliathan, Corophus, and a team of Corophus' closest friends and advisors set out that day, guided by the six-eyed ape. They rode for an entire cycle of moons before they found themselves in front of the smallest Daenery tomb Corophus had ever seen. It was only a single obelisk, sticking up out of the gray dust of Lyriel, covered in the writing of the Daenery people. Tell me what words are written upon this stone, Seliathan said. You may use any means at your disposal. Only when you find the answer to this riddle will I call you truly wise. Seliathan bowed to Corophus and left, vowing to return in one year's time for the traveler's answer. In the first year, Corophus rallied the top scholars of Lyriel. They spared no expense in attempting to decode the language of the Daenerys, and to some degree they succeeded. It is thanks to their work that we can now read the marks on the outside of many Daenerys tombs. 
But when the year ended and Seliathan returned, Corophus was no closer to reading the words on the stone. He made three guesses, and when none of them were correct, Seliathan left once more. Again, he promised to return after one year had passed. The next year, there was a famine in Lyriel. Some of the underground mushroom farms had failed to produce a full yield, and blight had struck many of the flocks. The people turned to Corophus for a solution, but he had nothing to give them. If I am not wise enough to solve the riddle of the stone, he said, how can I be the one to solve your problems? Go, turn to another for answers. His advisors rationed the remaining crops, and the city was saved, but Corophus hardly noticed. Another year passed, with Corophus still unable to read the stone. This time, when Seliathan arrived, Corophus challenged him. What do you know of Daenerys' secrets? he mocked. You are an ape from the gray wastelands of Lyriel. He arranged a hundred puzzles and riddles in front of them and dared Seliathan to solve even half of them, if he was worthy. Seliathan bowed before him. My lord, I am secure in my own wisdom. Are you? What does the stone say? Corophus had no answer. Once more, Seliathan left. This time, Corophus promised a fortune in gold and powerful artifacts to any traveler who could bring him the key to the stone's secret. Lyrial travelers are not immune to greed, and they spread out into the unexplored wilds of Lyrial. Even travelers of other territories came to Lyrial, eager to try their minds against the riddle that had bested the famous Corophus. That year, a rebellion rose against the travelers of Elysia. Their ruling council sent to Corophus asking for Lyrial travelers, for in those days the Lyrial travelers served and supported the Elysians without question. Corophus had few travelers of any worth to give them, for all his best and strongest were out of the city, trying to solve Seliathan's riddle. At the end of the year, Seliathan returned. This time, Corophus had a dozen possible answers to lay before him, but the ape rejected them all. I see why men call you learned, Seliathan said. I fail to understand why they also call you wise. In one year, I will return. The ruling council of Elysia was not pleased at Corophus' poor support in their time of need. That year, they sent Elysian travelers into Lyriel, where they removed Corophus from power and put another in his place. By that time, Corophus did not care. He brought a tent into the endless gray sands, making his home outside the Daenerys obelisk. Some of his old friends and servants brought him food every once in a while, and thus he passed the rest of this life, meditating each day on the stone's words. Every year, Seliathan came from his distant home to challenge Corophus, and every year, Seliathan left, saying the traveler was not yet wise. In this way, Corophus came to the end of his allotted years. As Corophus lay dying, his sightless eyes staring up at ancient words he had long since memorized, he heard Seliathan approach one last time. Please, before I die, tell me the answer. Corophus said. Is it a map? Is it nothing more than nonsense? What have I done wrong? Tell me before I leave this world forever. Seliathan placed one of his hands on Corophus' bony shoulder. It is an old Daniri proverb, a warning to men such as you and I. Wise men seek understanding so that others might gain. 
to pursue knowledge at all costs is the mark of a true fool. So Corophus died, and the wind buried him at the foot of the prize he had chased for so many years. There are those who say he lies there still. Even now, when many of his accomplishments are lost and gone, the warning of Corophus remains, etched in a forgotten language onto a spire of stone. Let us not forget this lesson, lest we must learn it anew. Intelligence without wisdom is like a sword without a hilt. It will bring you only harm. Elysian Book of Virtues, Chapter 3, Silver Congratulations, you've survived the Hidden Gnome Podcast. Today's stories were Ragnaros and The Crystal Fields by Will White, read by Travis Baldry. The next episode will be available on the day the Caterpillar of Ages consumes the last leaf on the sacred dawn tree. Until that time, remember, you may not be watching gnomes, but they're always watching you.